Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 23rd, 2019. The share IDs for Friday, June 21st are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,063. That's 13063. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,065. That's 13065. This morning, A Vision for You presents, Are You Getting Returns on Your Investments? The OA 12 Steps are a game plan for life, a plan for living, a life which is happy, joyous, and free. They are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. With the formal completion of step 12, we enter a new phase of recovery. The compulsion is gone, a spiritual awakening has occurred, and the 12 promises are coming true in greater depth. Armed with a set of spiritual tools in the form of the 12 steps, we can now face and effectively handle the challenges of life that had once overwhelmed us. More than that, we can achieve serenity and enjoy a rich and rewarding life, full of returns on our investments. In all this, we find the greatest of ironies. By admitting powerlessness, we have been given power. By surrendering, we have won. God has truly done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has taken our pain and our suffering and turned them into healing for others. He has made it possible for us to be of service. He has given us meaning and direction, purpose and accomplishment. He has taken emptiness and filled it up. All these things are returns of the investments through 12 simple steps worked with discipline and courage and consistency and a power greater than ourselves. Joining us today to expound on this very topic is Esther C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Canada. Esther is dedicated to living the 12 steps, to carrying the message of recovery to others, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us on the line this morning. With great pleasure, I welcome Esther C. Good morning, Esther. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, my fellows. Um, My name is Esther C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Canada, and I am grateful today to be living in the solution one day at a time. You know, one of the things I love best about special editions is that it gives it gives one the opportunity to share on ideas, you know, that are floating around in my head. And, of course, the challenge is to be able to, you know, crystallize those, you know, bouncing uh, thoughts into something useful to other compulsive overeaters because that's really what we're here for, right, to carry the message of recovery um, as it states in Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening. That's what we do. Um, Before I get into all that, I'd like to take a few minutes to, to share my credentials and to qualify. I'm a real compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety like we read in the big book, and I have been struggling with the food for as far back as I can remember, ever since I was a little child. I was either running away from the food or I was running towards the food. 
So getting food, hiding what I was doing from everybody around me, figuring out ways how to eat and not get fat. This is where all my energies were invested while I was growing up. And it felt like a, a dark cloud that hovered over my growing up years. The only thing that changed as my disease progressed into adulthood and I began my own family was that hiding was a bit easier because I was running my own home and I was in charge of the cooking and shopping. So it's no surprise why um, in those years, my early adult years, my weight ballooned. I, I had a hard time dieting. I was not a good dieter because to me food was like oxygen. I was uh, on the lazy side, so I didn't exercise at all. And it's no surprise that by the time I reached, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I reached a top weight of about 260 pounds. It, it seemed that every single aspect of my life was negatively affected by the food, by food problem. I had social issues, spiritual problems, emotional, vocational. I couldn't seem to hold down a, a normal job, even though I, was, I thought of myself as relatively you know, averagely, at the very least, intelligent, psychological ramifications, financial for sure, and medical, absolutely. It, it seemed that there was no part of my life that wasn't touched or suffering on, on, on account of the food problem. I also had some pre-existing medical conditions, and they were exacerbated by the weight, so much so that in my early to mid-30s, I needed to walk with a cane. You know, there you know there are a lot of factors that people consider when they when they go shopping, right? They think about price, or selection, or the convenience of the stores. Well, you know how I used to choose where I would shop, how close I could park my car to where I could pick up a shopping cart. You know, I didn't like using my cane. I was very embarrassed to be so young using a cane, so I only shopped where there were shopping carts. I have to tell you, I didn't see the inside of a mall for a long, long time, because the malls in my area didn't have shopping carts. And so I, I just couldn't make my way around the mall. Um, on occasion, I didn't have a choice, and I'd have to hobble around with my cane. So I'd, I'd drive really far out, um, you know, to find a location that was far from my neighborhood where nobody would recognize me. I, I experienced great shame in being a very, very overweight person at that age, having to walk with a cane. But, you know, traveling that far out to find a, a faraway mall wasn't too bad because that meant I could, like, polish off, you know, four ice cream bars or something while driving along and, you know, wondering, you know, about the great mysteries of life. Like, is there clothing that's bigger than a 3X? You know, this is this was the confusion and the pain of, of my life in those days. So those are my credentials. And along with a great desire to stop eating compulsively, that, you know, qualifies me to be in the rooms with you today. Um, in terms of recovery, in the 80s and 90s, I tried a few meetings, but truth is, I found them boring a little bit, the ones that I had gone to, and there were a lot of overweight people in the room who didn't look very happy to me, so I left, and I only returned about 12 years ago, and by then I was badly mangled. Um, life had become even more unmanageable in those years, and at that point I was willing to just do whatever I had to do um, and willing to follow instructions, so thankfully... Um, after, you know, visiting a number of different types of meetings and different ways of uh, approaching the um, 12-step program, in the summer of 2010, I found a sponsor, someone in whom the problem had been solved, and I completed the steps with her as they were outlined in the first 164 pages of the big book. 
and ever since then, it's been a, a new a new uh, life for me. I refer myself today as recovered, not cured, but I, and essentially that means to me that I'm free from the daily struggle with food. So if you want to read a description of what it means to be recovered and what we mean when we refer to ourselves at recovered, as recovered, you should read on page 85. It's a very nice description of how we're no longer fighting the food. Not cocky, not afraid, just a sort of neutral um, state of being with the food. And that really is the greatest gift for me. I always knew that I, whatever I did, I, you know, if I ate less, I would lose weight. But I never imagined that there was such a possibility of being, um, you know, no longer tied to the food, no longer obsessing over the food. So um, the big book also states, on page 64, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out physically and mentally. So it was not surprising then that I released about 120 pounds, and today I enjoy a healthy and normal body weight, and many of my medical challenges have been resolved. So when discussing what the future looks like as a recovered person, my sponsor, when we were having these discussions, she would liken she would liken it to a bank account, and you know, and and. And she said to me, you know, Esther, all the little things that you're meant to do every day, right, to grow spiritually are like small deposits you're going to make in a bank account. So whether it's meditation or prayer or sponsoring or doing my 10-step inventories, all of these seemingly insignificant small daily practices are like little deposits that I make in a bank account. Now, no one else is ever going to know if I'm doing them. I'm going to know if I'm doing them, but no one else is going to know. But it's important for me. Um, to be disciplined about this because if my goal is to grow spiritually, as the big book tells me that is my our goal now, in order to continue to be recovered, then I had better be sure to build up a decent balance in the bank. My sponsor told me, she says, Esther, because the challenges are going to come one day and you're going to need the reserves to dip into. You know, sometimes we build our balances and sometimes we reduce our balances. And she says, get busy, get disciplined, and do what you have to do. So that's what I did. I got busy sponsoring and repeating over and over to myself that it was my best insurance policy sponsoring. And with regards to keeping myself unblocked from higher power through the 10-step process, at the beginning, you know, the early years of my recovery, I, what I would do is I would set my alarm clock on my cell phone to ring every couple hours so I could check in with myself. You know, up until that point, if I was really, if I was super angry or fearful, I knew right away and I could do a quick inventory. But I noticed that, um, like, subtle worries or discontent or irritations, they were a lot harder to identify and very easy to sort of push aside or kind of, uh, um, you know, you know, sweep under the rug in the middle of a busy work day. So I, that's why I felt it was helpful to set my alarm because I could say, you know, are, are you in a peaceful state, Esther? Because um, if you're not, maybe that needs a second look. Today, I no longer have to set my alarm clock because there's a certain sensitivity that I, I felt was developed where anything other than peaceful and serene, usually I can sense it right away and then I can, you know, take take care of it. Um, meditation was very hard for me. I was taught to start small and make sure I do something every day and that the only wrong way to do it was not to do it at all but I'm going to come back to all that a little bit later. Um, and so having said all that, all that to me, my sponsor assured me that if I continued to do what I had to do, as I described, then the frequency, intensity, and duration of, you know, 
my acting out of line or any flare-ups of anger, that they would eventually diminish over time. And that's actually what happened. I, I didn't feel the changes as they were happening. But occasionally I would look back and say, you know, I don't do that anymore. Or I, I remember once we were just speaking in a group of ladies sitting around talking about the last time we raised our voices or yelled, and I had to sit and think, so when was the last time? And there was a time in my life where I would be shouting at someone every single day. And here I was thinking back to a year and a half earlier when, and, and that was an amazing thing, right? These changes that um, I don't notice when they're happening, but looking back I could see, you know, I could see that life looks different. You know what it's like? It's like when you move from childhood to adulthood, right? Most of us at some point in our lives, I think, most of you on the line too, when we were frustrated, when we were toddlers or preschoolers, we'd lie on the ground and we'd you know, kick, kick and scream. And today that I doubt that any of us do that, but I bet you couldn't tell me the last time you did it because it's sort of an imperceptible change that happens as we move along. And that's how it feels, what it was like for me. I, I didn't feel the changes as they were happening, but mostly as I looked back or when I was saving the present, I would, you know, think about the way it used to be and how it was different now. And again, best of all, the food wasn't calling to me, and that was the most amazing thing. So life is good, right? I was feeling better, and life was getting better, and I had a solution to all my problems. I mean, who could ask for anything more, right? But sometimes success or, you know, an abundance, it brings its own challenges. Um, you know, sometimes the gift of the program keeps us from the gift of the program. Uh, this is something I noticed about myself, that abundance is always something that I want, and yet when it happens, it's so easy to, for me to, you know, get off track or to, um, you know, sort of move, move away from what I know I should be doing. Now, the reason I had um, chosen uh, the title of this talk is Return on Investment, because there's a thought that I was having in the last little while. Now, everybody on the line is either young or was young at one point. I remember when we were told about saving for retirement, um, and, and some of us, were, you know, were taught about saving for the future. Uh, and, you know, we were also taught, like, about small deposits that they'll yield a sizable amount, you know, later on in life as the decades pass, right? So, of course, you know, I wasn't the type at that point in my life to pay too much attention to what I should be doing. And I'm thinking, oh, who's getting old? I'm not old. But, of course, now I see things differently. And, and as you all know, middle age is not the ideal time to start saving for retirement. But you, you get the, the, the parable I'm trying to bring up. Um, recovery is the same way. In that early pink cloud stage when everything program-related was fun and new and exciting, it was like a honeymoon. You know, but, um, but uh, I quickly learned that I'm only going to, have what to withdraw from my, you know, spiritual account, what I put in. So I'm going to share some of those um, roadblocks and unexpected challenges that I experienced and see if any of that could be helpful for anybody on the line. And those of you who are recovered for, you know, for a while could probably think, you know, find some uh, um, interest in that. But then those of you who are brand new or who still binging or our newcomers might say to yourself, I just want to know how to stop eating, you know, and, and how to, how to, you know, what the solution to my problem is. What, what is any of this going to be useful to, you know, to me as a newcomer? And I, I will say that I, I found a great solace um, 
when I was even in the early stages of recovery, listening to what it, was, what it looked like down the road, listening to people who had been recovered one, two, five, ten years, and how they embraced challenges. Um, thinking back to Chapter 1, Bill's story, we always talk about this chapter is the prototype of the cycle of disease, right? The, the beginning of the disease, the descent into that insane life, and then learning of the solution. You know, with the usual, a few hiccups along the way, right, until we're willing um, to follow a spiritual way of life and have that transformation and recovery. So this is like the classic 12-step call. We always talk about Bill's story being the classic 12-step call, right? Did I feel like Bill, Bill felt? Did I eat like Bill drank? And in relating to the stories that we hear, um, you know, both his story and the stories of other fellows, we consider the possibility that maybe we've got the same problem and maybe the solution that worked for everyone else could work for us. You know, the big book is, is very upbeat. There's uh, lots of pep in, in reading it, especially in the fourth to the second edition where some of the history is told, very positive. The final chapter of Vision for You also has a, a really optimistic tone. And this is as it should be, right, because we want to get the newcomers on fire we want to give them a glimpse of the good life that awaits them when they recover. This is a very good thing. Our meeting, this one on the line, right, a vision for you, it's like that. It's got a confident, positive tone. Members articulate. They give generously of themselves. It's like our meeting is the breakfast of champions. You know, it's like the boost for the day. But, but Bill's story doesn't end when he recovers, right? He lives for many years after, and he experiences challenges. So you know what? what lines I started to relate to as my recovery moved along. On page 15, he says, I was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, and many times I have gone to my old hostel in despair. These are three lines from that page. You know, after the initial, <clears throat> excuse me, exciting stage of recovery, when the newness of everything wore off, I found comfort in this line of the big book. I found comfort to read in Dr. Bob's story that he still had the urge to drink for a while after he recovered. And for those of you who like to read, you know, more detailed accounts of our co-founders and some of the other early members in their lives, you'll note that while they remained so sober, there were still many personal setbacks and mistakes that they made. And I found that to be a source of inspiration in, in a way. When people ask me how I can listen to the same meetings day after day, you know, the same 164 pages, you know, sometimes the same people sharing. I always reply that just when I think, you know, it's getting same old, same old, someone will say a line and it'll invigorate me. It'll provide solace to whatever I'm experiencing, you know, in that particular time in my life. And I think to myself about the person who just shared, wow, they, they were just said what I was thinking, but I, I, I couldn't even articulate. I didn't know how to say it. So back to the challenges. I found that the challenges I experienced could basically be divided into two groups, right? Those between me and, you know, those and, and my fellows and those, are, you know, around me, people, and then those between me and higher power. Uh, regarding myself and others, um, one of the members on the line a number of years ago shared that she expects to make five mistakes per day. And then as they happen, she, sort of can't, she, she counts them, right? That's one, that's two. You can't imagine that little share was a bomb to my ego on the days that I goofed up and had a string of amends to make. 
and, and boy, did I goof up a lot. But just knowing that making mistakes, having to clean up, it, it's not a sign that I, I'm not recovered or I've done something wrong. It's just a sign that I'm human and I'm learning how to be different and how to build my spiritual bank account. Another area that um, brought me a lot of frustration in the early years was when I was sponsoring because I used to think that if I did everything right, whatever that everything was, right, it's different for everybody, I used to think that I would have oodles of recovered sponsees and change the face of compulsive overeating, you know, in North America as we know it. You know, fear not, you compulsive overeaters, Esther is going to save you. You know, armed with all the things that I learned. But of course, much to my frustration then, um, nothing of that sort happened. Though I couldn't at the time figure out why. Wasn't I a good sponsor? What's wrong with these people? Why couldn't I repeat some of the successes I had heard about other people that other people had in, in their home groups or in their locations? Sometimes I used to feel that I cared more about the sponsee's recovery than the sponsee did. I seemed to be putting more effort. So many inventories later, I could tell you that now I see sponsoring is the easiest job in the world, right? No frustration. Because all I have to do is show up at the appointed time that we're meant to speak and then share my experience with the steps at whatever point the sponsee is up to. I let them drive their own recovery. I don't push them. I don't cajole them. I don't prod them along or anything like that. I can't help the person who's not ready, and I can't stand in the way of, of a person who is. They've got a higher power, and it isn't me. And my recovery has no bearing on their recovery, right? They, they, it's not by osmosis. It's not like if you find a person who's got 5, 10, 20 years of recovery, then that it's a guarantee. There's no guarantee. And I myself don't get agitated anymore watching fellows go in and out of the room or in and out of relapse or generally like the dismal recovery that we see in Overeaters Anonymous. I mean, it's sad to... It's sad to see, and, and we, we do our part, but I don't get agitated or feel like I, I need to solve that problem. I know that I just do my little part according to my understanding of what my higher power wants from me. Um, and it was helpful for me to hear a recovered compulsive overeater on the line once say, um, you know, when was the last time you heard a fourth step? You know, it's something now that I ask myself periodically, and it serves as a good gauge for me that I am actually doing my, my you know small part to to help those who are still suffering. Um, another area where I experienced challenges relating to other people was, you know, in certain relationships and certain family situations. I had a, a relative who, they would just do what they usually do, right? We're not talking about anything illegal or abusive, but just poor behavior for an adult, which, which, would go on, which went on for many years. And I would experience resentment followed by 10 steps. And this continued like this for a number of years. Remember, this is already after I recovered. So thankfully, at least, um, as time went on, I did not act on it. So I didn't have any direct amends to make. But I felt stuck that I couldn't seem to get on with this family member. It somehow still bothered me. And the most baffling part about, um, you know, for me was that essentially, you know, in the relationship that we had, I was... I was right, meaning everybody I, I had spoken to, whether it was in program, at a program, agreed, even my recovered friend, that their behavior was wrong, and I was right. And, and, and then I guess I thought to myself, well, I could distance myself from them, but 
that didn't bring me serenity either, and it didn't feel like I wasn't getting the sense from higher power that the solution was to distance myself from them. I felt that there was like the next level for me to go to. So one time, kind of this is cycle repeated itself for a number of years, and I was listening one Sunday morning to a special edition, and there was a speaker. I don't even remember what they were speaking about, but someone asked a speaker this very question. They said, what do you do about resentments that come over and over again? And the speaker said something, which changed my life. He said, what do you gain by holding on to this resentment? And I thought, whoa, that was a splash of cold water. So I started to think, what do I gain? I said, okay, Esther, think this through. What do you gain? If you stay angry, then then what? What's the gain? But nothing came up for me. So I, I flipped it around. I said, let's try from the other end. If I stop being angry at this person, then what will I lose? And I realized that I would lose my position, my position of being right. If I'm right and and you're wrong and I continue to maintain that position, then I'm going to experience resentment over and over again. Does that, does, I don't know if that makes any sense or if that's convoluted. It just means that um, I guess I felt like if I sort of give in and stop being angry, then not them and no one else will know that really all along you've been doing the wrong thing and I was right. So I did spend a lot of time thinking about this idea of being right, and maybe you have also. But I want to tell you, I looked it up in the big book, and I found nowhere where it says that it's a virtue to be right. And I even read up a little bit on some other major spiritual movements, and the very same thing. There is no virtue in being right. This was a justified resentment, perhaps, just like the big book talked about in step four, and it had the and it had the power to kill me by sending me back to the food. And this repeated cycle of resentment, 10th step, resentment, 10th step, was not going to save me from that descent into the food. You know, a lot of us intelligent, hardworking, capable, honest people are often right, right? But it's not a spiritual virtue, and it wasn't getting me anywhere, and it was, it was like, I felt like it was draining me spiritually. So my new mantra was, be a light, not be right, right? When these type of resentments crop up, again, it's not. we're not talking about um, abuse or anything illegal like that. And you should know that since that day, I have not had this resentment towards this relative. This is a resentment that went on for years. And they still do what they still do, right? And again, a disclaimer, I'm not suggesting that all misdeeds be overlooked. Sometimes we need to act or speak up, right? This is something that, I would pray about it if I thought that it was the case. But again, this is just relationships where, you know, there's some kind of ongoing dynamic, and um, I was just, I was so grateful to be able to break it without sort of having to take the stance of, I can't be around you anymore because of the way you are. It was actually very satisfying for me. Today I look back and I'm amazed that they're still doing their shtick, and it's like no big deal. Um, one last experience in the area of, you know, between me and others are were unexpected ego flare-ups. You know, I, I found that the steady spiritual work and those daily deposits I mentioned earlier had their effects, and I felt that I was weaning myself from the need for other people's feedback, respect, or honor. But then I hit a snag at work, followed by a couple of other <laughs> ego-crushing personal failures, and it felt like I was being force-fed humble pie, and I was gagging on it. And the 10 steps weren't enough, no matter how many I did. And my behavior started to reflect my agitation. 
I would sometimes read the bedevilments, and I'd say to myself, am I back there? Am I back there in that state? And during this time, I never considered my binge foods. I never had those thoughts. But I did notice that I, that a few times I felt unsatisfied at the end of my meal. And I said to myself, now what? What am I supposed to do? So the amazing thing about the 12-step program of recovery is that the answers are always the same, and we know where to find them. But sometimes my ears don't hear it until the right time and at the right delivery. So and a fellow in program introduced me to an article titled Emotional Sobriety that was penned by Bill W. Um, years after he had recovered. And so I started to, and I still continue to read to this very day because I'm still feeling like I'm in that challenge. I read it every morning as part of my meditation. So I was able to, to distill the solution to my my challenges down to one question, and that is, Esther, are you ready to play the role that higher power has assigned you? Whatever that is, as unglamorous as that you believe that role is right now, as difficult as you may find it, as undeserving as it looks like to you, Esther, are you ready to play that role? Because until you do, you are like someone who's fighting the wind in your little boat, sailboat, and you're going to capsize. But once I catch the wind, once I'm willing to turn according to the will of my higher power, as I, I stated in step three, then that's it. I'll sail forward, and I'm going to feel the breeze. And I couldn't come to that so soon, right? It's, you know, I, I would say to myself, and again, experience the challenges, do 10 steps, but at one point I was like inches away from losing my job, among other things, and that was just the convincing I needed, right? Because some of us only learned the hard way. That was the convincing I needed, and then I accepted. And then at that point, I offered myself to higher power to do with me as he, as he will, just as we read in step three, and slowly to relieve me from the bondage of self. And the postscript to this story is that after all this, right, and this is something that went on for about a year and a half, my work situation and the other, um, other issues, challenges I was dealing with, they unfolded in a better way than I could have imagined, better the way, even better way than I had, had wanted, you know, way back, and new opportunities opened up for me. So it reinforced, again, how, um, you know, just going back to the big book that helped me recover the first time and mining that for solutions, being um, tuned in to, um, to my fellows and connecting with them and trying to see, like, looking for new sides to the to, to understanding the 12-step program of recovery and enabled me to get through a lot of those, um, what do you call it, difficult spots. You know, lots of ego for me to shave away, but emerging from these challenges, I realized that um, I used a lot of my deposits and that I was kind of heading towards a zero balance. So more of everything was needed for sure, more service, more sponsorship, and more fellowship. That was another area that, can, that began to be neglected, fellowship. Uh, somehow it seemed easier when I first came in the room 13 years ago. I think people just seemed easier to reach by phone. In those days, I didn't text yet. And even the phone meetings were smaller. As exciting it is to have, like, a member list of 5,000 people, it's just easy to feel overwhelmed and difficult to remember names and difficult to build relationships. I mean, you, you can't have 5,000 best friends, right? So, so I'm grateful to have where I am a small group of reco- recovered compulsive overeaters where I live who are also treading this journey with me and who are real-life people that I get to interact with in a more uh, um, personal way. 
And that brings me to my relationship with higher power. My kids taught me um, an expression, day, D-A-E, before anyone else. I'm not sure exactly what the source is, but I guess it could refer to someone's boyfriend, girlfriend, before anyone else. So when they told me that, I said, you know what? Higher power's got to be my before anyone else, before everyone else, because that's the most important relationship for me to cultivate. I can never neglect it. But this was really hard for me because I'm one of those practical types and I always found prayer meditation unsatisfying. I'm always on the go. So to me, a lot of the 11-step practices were a little boring, right? They felt like a chore. But I know I have to build this relationship. So what do I do? What, what kinds of things could are, are helping me to build this relationship? So in addition to the fact that um, okay, let's say we'll talk about um, you know I I've always done as my sponsor instructed me, and that was to make sure I do my my daily uh, um, you know my little daily deposits of prayer meditation. But I I knew that there had to be more to build this relationship, something that spoke to me more, or something that would make the prayer meditation a little easier. So what are the things that I think about over the years? Number one was honest abstinence. So you might be asking, what's the connection between abstinence and my relationship with, with higher power? Well, if I feel that I'm not, there's something I'm not getting from higher power or, or I don't know how to get from higher power, like that serenity, I'm going to start looking for it in the food. So sloppy abstinence or holding on to foods that it's time to let go of, these are going to reflect the quality of that relationship. Uh, now, I'm not referring here to a breach of one's abstinence, which is a completely different issue. Um, or, you know, a breach of, you know, any of the foods or behaviors that are on your do not list. This is this is more referring to the seemingly unimportant um, things that, or the things that we think are seemingly unimportant, but in fact should, you know, t- uh, uh, what's the word, signal to us that something in our relationship with higher power needs, you know, fixing, improving, right? Like, like for example, like, I don't know, lick, licking your plate or something like that, like a I'm licking my plate at the end of the meal. That may not be a binge behavior, but that's something that needs a little, you know, you know, I don't know. I haven't done that in many years, but I remember that there was a point where I would do that. And I just, at some point, I just realized if, if I'm licking my plate, maybe it means that something needs to be attended to in my relationship with higher power. Or if I'm creating concoctions out of abstinent food to get, to get I don't know, a rise out of them. Um, or if other compulsions or addictions are playing a, a bigger role, like shopping or whatever else it is, those are my signals that um, something needs to be fixed in my relationship with higher power. Um, so honest abstinence is one thing that needs to be attended to. Um, another thing is meditation. And something interesting I found is that whenever there's a Sunday speaker and then they open up the line for questions, and it doesn't matter even what they speak about. I I find that that there's always a question about what does your meditation look like? What does your meditation look like? I I guess it could be that other people have the same thought I have. Is like, well, we do what we're what we're taught to do, like the traditional meditation, you know, where you sit and you and you're quiet and you listen for God. But it didn't seem to create for me that fondness for higher power or that feeling of security. I did what I had to do because that was what I was taught. But I I was looking for something that was going to be a little richer for me, right? So I set up a few other practices, which 
actually do it better for me. Again, I continue the traditional ones, but I do other things which build relationship with higher power. Um, you know, I'm not going to um, like delineate them here just because they're personal to me. But um, you know, my sponsor always said like like whatever you know works for me to build that relationship, I should include in my day. So something. So for some people, walking in nature and thinking about God at that time is something that is a way for them to come closer to their higher power. It doesn't have to be sitting in a dark room in a specific position or, or you know, I don't know, in a yoga class. Um, formal prayer was also challenging for me, but I did persist because I knew I had to, you know, pray as well every day. And I found that it became easier as time went along and I persisted. And I also tried to, like, like instead of just, like, rattling off the prayers, right, we, you know, like just to think about each word and sort of savor them. That that also um, helped me, someone like me, who's not necessarily that spiritually oriented to find depth and, um, and I don't know, uh, um, to find depth in, 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 in um, building that relationship with God. I try to relate to my higher power like a daughter, and I sh- share my fears openly and my insecurities, you know, in conversations that run in my mind. I ask for guidance and courage and strength to do what I really want to do, which is when what I really want to do is his will. And when something hurts, I'm allowed to say, ouch. I, I don't have to be stoic. It doesn't mean that I'm angry if I tell higher power that whatever I'm going through hurts me or that an incident made me feel bad. It's something that I used to think like if I, if I express sadness or if I, if I um, you know, say, ouch, then it must mean that I'm, you know, something's wrong with my recovery and that's not necessarily the case i mean if i was angry then that would be something that i would have to take a look at but if you know if i if something painful happens and i'm crying and that's okay too and i can share that with higher power and that's also a way to build that relationship um there's also another thing that i found very helpful you know there's a specific message the spiritual message that the big book teaches right if you read um if you recall the big book on page 18 here, or 19, um, it says, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints, our respect for their opinions, our attitudes which make us useful to others, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend on our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs, right? So we're reading over and over again how serving others is the key to a happy life. I'm opening the 12 and 12 now. Here we go. I want to read a few lines here from step 12 in the AA 12 and 12. We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end and aim of our lives. Um, We would have to develop the sense of being in partnership or brotherhood with all those around us to give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment. Um, best possible source of emotional stability to be God himself. These were new attitudes that finally brought many of us to inner strength and peace that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or calamities not of our making. A few more. Um, we no longer strive to dominate or rule those about us in order to gain self-importance. We no longer seek fame or honor in order to be praised. We try to be humbly grateful and exert ourselves the more in a spirit of love and service. You know, there's many more quotes like this. This is this is a message um, 
principles that the the twelve step program of recovery is um, imparting to us. And I don't know about you, but it's definitely not the message that I hear and read and see all around me in the media and the music and in print. So you're saying, well, who cares, right? But first of all, I I felt a little cheated because I was so absorbed and obsessed with television and movies growing up that I think that a lot of those um, false ideas that were embedded in me were, you know, were related to the media. I mean, my elders and my family did not um, also preach, you know, that type of life of service, but who could compete with all the stuff you see on television? So I was almost poised as I begin adulthood to, to be angry at everything and everybody um, because um, a life of self-centeredness and fighting to be the t- at the top was, you know, with the combination of a, of a food problem was going to, did what it did, which was, you know, bring me to the depths. Um, I, today I know that I owe it to myself to enrich my life with messages that support the spiritual life I want to live and the relationship I want to have with higher power. Um, so this is why I, I, I carefully choose, um, you know, the things that I read, the things that I listen to, the things that I enjoy. You know, when I start, I, I was on a phone call, uh, outreach call with a fellow in program, and she was telling me about it, about being bullied by her sponsee, and then she described the conversation, and I'm like, that's not bullying. She's just disagreeing with you. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, everything today um, has sort of positioned us to be self-seeking, right? Everything that, that we hear out there positions us to be self-seeking, to see everything as a slight to our honor, to want to rise to the top, to believe that if we're not visible and out there and popular, you know, and of course rich and beautiful, then we're nothing like all those messages, they, t- they, take an, they have an effect, right? They're everywhere. They're pervasive. So that I know that I, that, um, um, you know, I'm not suggesting people become a hermit because we have to be out there to carry the message, but I found it helpful to support my spiritual growth by carefully choosing, the, you know, the, the, the influences in my life, including the books I read, the music I listen to, the media I, I, uh, I watch, um, how I dress, how I speak. It obviously looks different for everybody, but um, I want to. I want everything about me to reflect that I'm an ambassador for higher power, and that, that this is what I consider to be a, a life well lived is a life of service. Uh, the last point I want to mention is a, a problem that I had, one of the challenges I faced in recovery, and that is to put people on a pedestal. I often would idolize or idealize people, and not the principles. I tend to get very excited about recovery compulsive readers who are well-spoken or very active in service or, or just interesting people. And it's happened that some of, them have, some of them have fallen off the water wagon or, or sometimes they reveal the side to them which doesn't always match their talk. Or I would place too much reliance on them in, the, in their charisma or in their specific interpretation of 12-step recovery or in their specific way of doing things only to be disappointed you know, by, by what I just mentioned at some later time. So I, I did have a few hard knocks there until I realized again that a growing relationship with higher power makes me less prone to placing people on a pedestal. And something which my sponsor once told me is, is no good for them. She says, no good for a person to be on a pedestal. And she says, and don't let anyone put you on a pedestal if that should ever happen. She said, a, a pedestal is as confining as any other prison. And it's um, and it's eventually they get toppled. <laughs> so today I feel that 
there's something to learn from everyone. Sometimes um, I learn from, you know, people in and out of the rooms. I learn from people who are recovered, aren't recovered, are still in the food, aren't relapsed. Sometimes I'm learning what works, and sometimes I'm learning about what doesn't work. Um, people die. People drop out of program. I, I can't control that, but higher power is consistent and portable and accessible to me so long as I'm alive. So this is where, this is the relationship I need to invest in most. I think about something that Bill W. wrote. I, it could be that it's in the 12 and 12. I don't really remember. But he, he made reference to recovered alcoholics who'd gone out and served in World War II. And, you know, obviously there are no meetings, no outreach calls, no fellows around necessarily. But, you know, if you've got higher power and you've got a bank account full of those deposits, you know, we could do what they do is and, and distinguish ourselves even in challenging times. And this is what I recall reading, that they did a fine job, this is what Bill wrote, um, in the absence of a lot of the like accoutrements that we have today, but, but with a strong um, relationship with higher power. Uh, recovered compulsive readers are are people. They're humans like everybody else, but they they have found a solution to their food problem, and they live in that solution every day, and they carry that message to other compulsive readers. Whenever anyone asks me how, how I'm doing, I always say, amazing, and they're curious. What do you mean you're amazing? Like, some of them know of some of my challenges, but even the ones who don't, right? They say, how could that be? So I always answer, and I tell them, if you've got a solution to all your problems, what could be better than that? So I'm either before a challenge, in the middle of a challenge, or past the challenge, but I'm never despairing because I'm, I've got a solution to my problem, to every problem, and I'm always in the warm embrace of higher power and, and, the, and the warm embrace of the spiritual life and trudging along with my fellows and, you know, and, uh, and enjoying and savoring that life, right, that life where I'm not pulled by the, you know, pulled by the, uh, by the food and, and struggling and fearful. All those blessings are awaiting all of you as well those of you who are newcomers, so long as you make that decision to just do what you have to do, and when you finally recover, don't get complacent. Don't get lazy. Make your daily deposits because one day you're going to have to reach in and take out a big chunk of that, uh, of that, uh, those spiritual little um, dailies that you did. Um, with that, I think I'll pass. I want to thank everyone for listening, and I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Esther, for your inspiring and thought-provoking presentation this morning. Thank you so much, always, for your generous helpfulness and service on the line. Esther's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. Transition to a question and answer segment. So you can pose a question by pressing star one to unmute. Give me your first name and first letter of your last name as well, please. Kathy K. Kathy K. Sandy W. Sandy, gotcha. Star one to unmute. All right, well, let's break the ice with Kathy Kay. Go ahead, Kathy. 
you, Leah, for all the service you do, and thank you, Esther C. It was really wonderful to hear you again, and um, I identify so much with so much of what you said. Um, I would really be interested in hearing more <clears throat> about your efforts to um, stay in relationship with your higher power in this way, when you first started focusing on that and until it became solidified in your mind that higher power was always accessible to you, how did you discern whether you were connecting or not? Um, because I know for me, I do have periods where I'm not quite sure if this is higher power's will for me or if something else is. With that, I'll pass. Um, thank you, Kathy. That's a very good question. <clears throat> Sometimes I don't know. It's like every relationship. Um, what I find a lot about recovered compulsive overeaters, and I mentioned that they always ask about people's 10th step and what it looks like, it seems to sort of baffle people more than some of the other, uh, you know, things that they need to do on a daily basis. Um, it occurred to me that I don't need to to take, what's the word I'm thinking of? I don't need to um, assess the, my relationship with higher power all the time. Are we close? Aren't we close? Is this working? Isn't it working? I'll know if it is or isn't working by the level of my serenity, um, what it feels like when I, you know, in, you know, doing either praying or meditating. That's my cue. It's kind of like uh, any relationship I would have with a, a, someone that I love and that you know how women always want to, you know, kind of assess, where are we holding the relationship? They're like, you know, are we here? Are we here? And, you know, and sometimes um, it just, you know, like the, the, the reality is what the relationship is. So, so I don't always know um, if I'm connecting well to higher power, but all I could tell you is looking back, I seem to be making better decisions. I seem to be feeling more secure. I seem to worry less. Also, I seem, it seems to be easier for me um, to, to connect um, with higher power. Um, meditation is easier and more enjoyable. The other practices I do are easier and more enjoyable. So I guess that means it's getting better. And that, that's my only gauge. I, you know, the thing about higher powers is that they're not humans, and so there's a lot more mystery and unknown, you know, than known. I don't know if that's helpful. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Esther. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Sandy W., your turn. Thanks, Leah. Thanks so much again, always, for your service. And Esther, thanks so much for that um, um, wonderful share. That was so very helpful. Um, you know, I've heard before, and I love that concept of, like, making the deposits in the bank. And, um, um, and I'm ho I feel like I haven't really been tested since I've been recovered, so I'm hopeful that I'm really building up that bank account. But at the same time, I also hear people say, you can't stay clean on yesterday's shower. And to me, that kind of contradicts each other if I understand both correctly. So I'm just wondering if you've heard that um, expression as well and how you reconcile those two. Thank you. Well, think of brushing your teeth, Sandy. Um, I can't brush my teeth once a month, 
and and have good teeth. Like let's say it takes me, you know, 10 minutes to brush a day, and that's 30 days. So I can't brush my teeth for three hours straight, or whatever. The melt, I can't do the math in my head. I can't brush my teeth for a few hours straight once a month and expect that that'll help me. So the daily deposits are important, and what they what they do for me is um, position me to have healthy teeth at the end of the month. So I I think what people are saying is that um, I I don't think that it doesn't sound to me like it, it contradicts because I can't. Um, I think there is something to to, um, I think we need to do our daily deposits every day, and I think we, we build a sort of spiritual bank account in that way, and I think it serves us when we, when we need it, when we go through challenges. But I don't, I don't know that it necessarily contradicts the idea that you can't, you can't recover on, you know, you know, yesterday's, I don't think that the I don't think that, I don't think that we use up our balance on a daily basis. Do you know what I mean? Like if if I remember there was a time when I had surgery and I couldn't even speak on the phone for a long time, a couple of weeks, no phone, I couldn't read either. So you know, there are times people are not they don't have will have not have access for whatever reason to meetings or fellows. I I really believe at that time what you've got you're kind of using up your balance. I, I don't think we can say that, you know, even someone who doesn't eat, right, could probably go for a number of days without food, maybe fewer days without water. But there, there is an idea that you could live off your reserves for a short period of time. Now, that is a very short period of time, and that's not a way to live all the time. So I'm not sure that I agree that you can never live off any reserves. Um, like I don't know what, so what if someone's in the hospital and hooked up to machines or something do we say that because you didn't get to three meetings that week that's it like it's all over i don't know so that's how i don't know i hear what they're trying to say i think it's an idea that's trying to um promote which is which is valuable that 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 you build you build yourself through you know the small things that you do every day but to say that you can never um you know dip into you know five years worth of meditation when or, or prayer and or something like that, or fellowship, you know, and during a time where you have no access, I, I don't know. To, to, to me, anyways, that was not my experience. Thank you, Esther. That's very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Sandy W. Before we proceed, let me let you know that uh, the share ID for this presentation, 13,068. That's 13068 for today's Sunday special edition. Okay, further questions? Star one to unmute. Give me your first name and first letter of your last name, please. Nancy L. Is that Lucy? Nancy. Okay, Nancy. Sheila O. Sheila O. Rhonda R. Rhonda R. Stacy K. Melissa C. Melissa C. Julia E. Repeat that, please. I apologize. Julia E. Got it, Julia. Thank you. All right. That's a good group. Everybody, please mute. 
except for Nancy L. Good morning. This is Nancy L. in Arizona. Thank you so much, Ruth, for your inspiration this morning. My question is, could you expound briefly on what went through your mind when you were in the presence of that family member that was very irritating? And then after your renewal um, and you walked in the room with that same person with the same irritations going on, uh, what was going on in your thinking at that time? Thanks so much. Could I just ask you to repeat your question? I didn't hear it. You didn't come through so clear. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. You you oh, were just better. talking. Okay, you were talking about a family member and how you had to do resentments over and over and over on that person. What changed in your thinking when you went into the room with that person after the transformation? Okay, so as I mentioned, um, their behavior was bringing, was very painful to me. Um, again, it wasn't uh, abusive or, or illegal or something serious, but just, just it, it, it brought me pain, right, because it's been going on for a number of decades, and every time it would happen, I would um, do a 10-step and sort of feel that temporary relief, but it kept happening over and over, and I, and I didn't get a sense that the right thing was just to withdraw um, you know, because some people do that. They say, oh, you know, I have to set up boundaries. A person can't be in my life. And I, there might be the time when it was right. But um, what changed in my thinking was the, that I no longer saw being right as a position that I needed to maintain. Because as long as I needed to maintain that I was right and that they were wrong, I would, I would just constantly have these resentments. And again, justified resentments, good for everybody else, but for us compulsive overeaters, it takes us back to the food. So once I, I realized that I didn't have to be right, um, and they were who they were, and I didn't have to read into it so much, then I no longer had resentments. Now, it also meant that that like that they wouldn't realize that I was right, and no one else would realize that I was right. You know, meaning I, I kind of like there was a certain... Uh, uh, you know, I felt a certain sainthood in maintaining the position of the person who was right. And so once I was willing to uh, get rid of that need to be right in that situation, then I didn't have the resentment anymore. And I want to also add that it, after that happened, there were a few other relationships where I, it, it was similar, right? Um, where, again, the person, the other person's behavior, by all accounts, anyone you'd ask, therapists, uh, spiritual mentors will say they're wrong and you're right. They're not doing the right thing. But I didn't gain by maintaining that, by by having the need to be right, having to show the world, you know, you know that person over there, I'm right and they're wrong, just so you should know. So the, what changed in my thinking was the need to be right, thinking that being right was even important. That changed. I don't know if that answers your question. Now, again, I made a disclaimer. Sometimes we need to, to something's going on and we need to, to act on it or, you know, do some type of action and, and where appropriate and however appropriate based on what we understand from a higher power, we can go ahead and do that. But I'm, this, this, this is what we're referring to 
um, things where there's nothing really to do, that a person is who they are and with all their faults. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy L. Sheila O., your turn. Hi. Hi, Esther. Thank you so much for being with us today. I um, just am new to the Visions to You for You program, and I'm so grateful I found it because I'm 77 and i am been living, I feel like I'm living in the reserves in some ways because I can't go to the meetings anymore because of the um, physical problems that I'm having and chronic pain, et cetera. Um, but when you closed today, you talked about being amazing. When people ask you that you're how you are, you say you're amazing. And I guess I just loved that. I love I loved everything you said, but I I really love that. And I just want to know. I don't know how I'm going to turn some of my self pity and. Um, fear of these physical things. <clears throat> I've had an illness since in this infancy and um just I've been absent since I started visions for you but I'm like I just don't want to be in self-pity or I want I guess I need to accept I'm not sure more um but it's wonderful to stay out of the food I want to be abstinent more than, you know, I need, I'm in my relationship with my higher power and I'm working on that, but I don't know if you can find a question in that, but I just love that you think that you're amazing and you tell people because I live in this building here with the seniors and we're all in the hallways and we're talking about how to get each other to the appointments and our aches and our pains, but, um, I guess if I could act amazing, that would be good. Hmm. Anyways, Esther, I just, I heard a woman say one day that she, in the program, that she changed her scars into stars by her attitude. And I just think that that's something like what you were talking about. But um, thank you so much. And I'll pass with that. Thank you, Sheila. I will. I don't know if you had a specific question, but I will comment about what it sort of sounded like a question. And the thing about self-pity, besides that, it sends me straight to the fridge. The road to the fridge is called self-pity. One of the roads. Um, it's uh, it's self it's selfish in the sense that it's a it's it's a, one of the ways. Um, one, when we are feeling selfish and wanting what we want, it's one of the way, one of the things we do to get what we want. Like if we stew in self-pity, either you know God or people around us will will give in and give us what we want, right? There's people when our when we want what we want, there's different ways to get it, and some people will tend to more, more to the more bullying side, and there's other people like us, like really nice people, and they'll either you know stew in self-pity or become people pleasers, whatever the case may be. But it's still the same self-centeredness, and I want what I want, and life has to be my way. I found that the third step, in a sense, is, was the most transformational for me um, because it reminds me over and over again that I'm here to play the role that he assigns. 
as difficult as it is, as unfair as it seems, and so so now that I agree that I must play the role that he assigns in order to be um, in order to be recovered, then how can I change my thinking about this particular role? That's and that's why life can, is always amazing because I have a solution to all my problems. It doesn't mean that I'll get whatever I want. That if right the, in, in the nice step promises it doesn't say we will someone become rich. It just says that the fear of, of financial security is going to leave us. And it doesn't say that we'll always be healthy, only that the fear of being healthy and infirm. Uh, I'm maybe not at the place where you are, but I'm also starting to notice that things don't work like they did 30 years ago, and and I could, you know, deny it or d- try to defy it. But w- one thing I have to understand is that I keep asking myself, and I'll, and I'll ask you, Sheila, are you ready to play the role that that you know? your higher power has assigned to you are you are you at step three and once you agree that you are and you said that third step prayer so now you do your fourth step to see what type of thinking um is driving your fears and resentment and and i often found especially when it was fear of health related matters like this fear like i'm not i'll suffer i'm not going to manage like the fear of suffering or not managing or having a hard time it it, it you know it keeps us up at night. But if I could look at it differently and that, you know, I'll just take it as it comes. And if I suffer, then that's part of living, right? Everybody suffers somewhere, somehow. Um, and then suddenly um, the anxiety associated with, you know, getting older or, you know, not being well changes. So I would say, you know, wherever you are, um, I don't know if you started the step yet, but you know, think about that when you get to step three. And, and, and something for everyone to think about. So, sometimes we, we get thrown for a curveball. We, we, we're put in positions in life that we, we didn't want. We have children that are um, maybe have disabilities. We have relatives, close relatives that die. We ourselves suffer. Nobody asks for that stuff, but if, if that's what comes our way, I think it, it, for those of us who want to stay recovered and stay, you know, out of the food, it, it, it behooves us to to sit down and say, okay, am I am I ready to to do it God's way? Because because when I was doing it my way, it wasn't working, and I was in the food. And I hope that helps. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you very much, Sheila. Oh, Rhonda R, your turn for question. Rhonda R, star one to unmute. Good morning, Sheila. Um, Esther, this is Rhonda R., recovered compulsive overeater in Atlanta. Hi, Rhonda. Oh, good morning. Okay. I really love your share and thank you for your service. I related so much to the part about being right and making other people wrong, which is a habit for me. My question is can you just repeat your line about being right? versus giving life. Thank you. I I uh, had this um that thought when I um thanks by the way Rhonda for the question. I had that thought when um you know, when it came to my children, right? Cuz there were certain certain things, certain dynamics that I saw in my home and they're older now which um which which if I would ask anyone they'd say that they're not they're not really 
doing what they should, and, and I am, right? But I, I just I just haven't been able to get anybody, for sure not them, but nobody to, like, I can't control anybody. I can't get anyone to do anything. So I realized that the thing about right, light, not right, is rather than trying to prove that I was right and trying to get other people to see how they were wrong and I was right and to, you know, to, like, knock into their heads um, the wrongness of their actions and try to teach them that, I, I, I noticed that the only thing I could do is be a light, that my consistent spiritual growth, my behavior, that is the only contribution I can make to change other people's behavior. It's the only thing I could do. And I want to tell you that that relative I had mentioned earlier in my share, everything changed about that dynamic. Like, like not only did the relationship become better and I no longer have resentments, but I, I could sort of see some changes in them also. That's all we could do. So... I don't know how it came came up to, in my head that time, and I remember sort of like, you know, uh, what's where I'm thinking of, you know, feeling that when I was feeling that frustration of like, you know, why am I the only one around here that ever does anything? And then I was thinking about it. I said, Esther, all you can contribute to this, right, is to if you've made the decision that you're going to stay in this relationship in this way, then all you could really do is to be a light, right? So that's my little mantra. So it became light, not right. Being right didn't help, but being a light did change things. And I always believe that when we act a certain, in a certain godly spiritual way, down the road, like, like it's fixing people's minds and maybe they remember. They, re, they remember, oh, our mother used to or our aunt used to, like, maybe, maybe not, you know, but it certainly brings peace for me, which is important, right, for me not to be into the, in the food. So that's how um, that came to mind that light, not right idea. Thanks, Rhonda R., for your question. Stacy K., your turn. Star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service. Good morning, Esther. Um, my name is Stacy K. I'm a compulsive eater in Colorado. And, uh, yeah, thank you for such a, um, a great share you know, the, the clarity, the hope, um, you know, the practicality of it. I love it. And um, I, I wish sometimes that I could, you know, share more clear or more practical, but that's another, um, that's another matter. But I was thinking about how, you know, this whole spiritual growth thing and how we continue, you know, for a lifetime. And my, my, it changes for me a lot. I always, you know, I stick, like you said, to the directions of the book, but there are times when I can't, when I struggle to be still. And even when I make myself like sit on my hands and, and sit there, I struggle so much. And I know that, that God is, that God's okay with that. But I, my question is, um, I assume, I shouldn't assume this, but if you have, tr- if you have difficulty sitting still, what helps you the most? Um, you know, I tend to call a lot of people and try to hear God through them. But anyway, um, yeah, um, if you could share about that, that'd be great. So, of course, I have trouble sitting still. <laughs> have always had, and that's my big problem, because I'm not necessarily inclined, um, Stacey, to to the sort of the spiritual, you know, you know, kind of quietness that I hear in other people. So when you say how do how do I get myself to sit still only by sitting still, meaning just doing what I have to do, 
Um, and sometimes when I feel like I don't want to meditate or I don't want to pray so that I still do something, I could just sit in my recliner and then just have a conversation with God. I could tell him I don't want to pray and meditate. I could, I, I, he's, he's higher power. He's the source of everything good in my life and, and the power that keeps me, you know, uh, recovered. So why can't I share my frustration, my difficulty? Why can't I, I say to higher power, you know, like I'm about to sit here and do my prayers and let me tell you that it's really hard because I've got all these things going on and I'm really worried, but I, I know that I need to start my day right. Like I could share that, right? And then And then go on to do what I need to do. It doesn't, I don't think it takes away necessarily from, uh, um, you know, from my spiritual work to, to be honest about the fact that it's hard for me or um, that I'd be rather, rather be doing something else sometimes. Uh, there, there, uh, there are things that one could do to <clears throat> keep their mind quiet. Sometimes it could be just tuning into a, record, a recording on A Vision for You to just sort of take us away from, like, the rat race and bring us back to what we know. There are also uh, on the internet recordings of, you know, meditations, and I've made use of those as well. You know, sometimes I need someone else's help to get me settled. I also find music very, um, very good to fill my, you know, some of the, like all the little plans and designs going on in my head. I actually find music very good. There was a point where I used to play a little piano before I played, prayed and meditated because I, I couldn't get myself off the treadmill and, you know, into meditation, and, and that was a, a good segue for me. If, and, uh, presuming that I'm playing, like, the right type of music that, you know, fills me with inspiration. So, you know, whatever it takes, but it's got to happen. Thanks, Stacy. Yes, thank you, Stacy K. Next up, Melissa C. Hi, thank. You. Oh gosh, thank you so much, Esther. I got a lot um, out of your share this morning, and thank you, Leah, too, for your continued service. Um, I, I especially uh, what you had said about um, pedestals. You know that they're prisons because they're confining, really got my attention um so thank you for that but my question um had more to do with sponsorship because um you know you mentioned about um not taking it personally you know when someone recovers or doesn't and that it's not about you um and um and i get that and and i think i'm growing in that area but um you know, my my question is like in an effort to be compassionate and and useful. You know, um, do you ever find that you have to terminate, you know, a sponsor, sponsee relationship just in an effort um, to be available to someone maybe who who is taking it um, more seriously, since there is only a certain amount of time in the day? And I'm just wondering how you navigate that kind of sensitive issue. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Um, so the way I spot, like way back when, one of the ways I was sponsored is that like I had a time that I called in every day. I reviewed the homework. I got my next assignment. We we talked a little bit, whatever we did. Um, so because of my schedule, I don't do that anymore. I like I'll let's say I'll start the sponsorship relationship and we'll have a discussion and I'll say, okay, I've sent you, you know, this is what you should do next. 
And what they do when they're done is then they, I tell them to be in touch with me. So I tell them you can, you know, and they'll usually text me and they'll say, done the assignment. I'll say, okay, let's speak at, I don't know, two, three, eight, whatever works. Um, now I tell them, I tell them like this. <laughs> I said, you can call me in an hour. You can call me in a day. You can call me in a week. You can call me in a month. You can call me a year. I said, it makes no difference to me. Um, I'll, uh, I tell them I'll tell you that most people who, you know, put a month between assignments don't recover. I have never had a sponsor like that. And sort of these are the, this is sort of the profile, the recovered ones, that, you know, and these are the profile, the not recovered ones. It's your choice. So I never, I don't care if they don't call me back in a month. I've never had to terminate anyone. They terminate themselves because they just simply stop calling. Or, you know, there's one person I gave an assignment to, and she sends me text periodically, I'm so sorry, I'm so busy, I can't, uh, this happened. And I'm like, great, who cares? What does this make to me, right? So, so I've never had to terminate anybody because they just drop off the radar, you know, when, when they stop doing their homework. Now, the thing I tell them is, we don't speak until their work is done. I mean, if someone's in a crazy emergency, I suppose they should call, you know, something like that. But I, I don't, the only thing we do together is step work. So they, they don't get to just call and complain and chit-chat and check in or things like that. It's strictly we're doing the work together. So when you've done what you had to do, then you get to call. And that that is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like a, a self, uh, it's sort of a system that's set up so that I never have to, I never have to run anyone, and I never have to, have to, um, I never have to fire anyone because they, they only call. And unless they, I would send them off with homework, and they'd call me in a month's time. They said, okay, I, I did my 20 minutes of homework, and this was like a month ago. So fine, I'll pick up from there. What do I care? Now, I'll, I'll always drop hints along the way. I'll say, you know, if you leave a month between all your little homework assignments, I don't think, you know, I don't think they're going to cover it, but I, you know, if they still want to do the work and still call me a month later, a year later, makes no difference to me. I, I've set that time for, for, for service. So it doesn't matter if they call or someone else calls, right? So I don't know it's a style that works with everybody. Some people feel that they need to have people on top of them more. I've had sponsors that say, you know, Esther, it's not really working. I really, really need someone who's more, um, what, what are the words they use, more, um, uh, I don't know if the word is discipline. They're looking for someone to, to, you know, push them along and prod them along and say, you didn't call and call me tomorrow. And so I'm not the, that person for them, and they usually leave. But this, to me, it makes really sponsoring um, manageable and relieves me of all that angst of, you know, should I keep them, shouldn't I keep them? The other thing I do when I start working with people, it's I don't always say this, but I often do. I tell them, like this, because sometimes people call and they say, oh, well, you know, I heard you speak, can you sponsor me? So I tell them, I just want you to know that my my recovery has nothing to do with your recovery. I told them that from my perspective, I have a 100% recovery rate. I have remained recovered through 100% of everybody that I sponsored. I said, but from the, the sponsor's end, I said, it's like pretty dismal, 1%, 2%. Most people I start with don't recover and it has nothing to do with me. So forget everything you ever heard me say, just think about what you need to do. Because I, I want them to understand from the outset that no, where I am has no bearing on their recovery, no bearing on their recovery. And I also like to tell them that I had a sponsor once who spoke very little English, and I did not speak her language at all. And this person is on fire. Now we're talking six years after I sponsored her. How is that possible? She didn't even understand everything I was saying. And I for sure didn't understand everything she was saying. Because she had a willingness, and she did what she had to do, and, and, and 
you know, and so it's not about, you know, uh, articulate sponsors or anything like that. It's, I really want them to know that it's their job. Some people don't like to hear that. Some people want to hear that they're going to be carried and they're going to be loved and, and, and then somehow they'll, they'll get it. Um, but other people, you know, finally come to the realization that it's just about them and higher power and we're just here, you know, to shine a little light along the way. But ultimately it's their inner work that has to, you know, that's going to make the difference between recovery or back into the food. So I hope that helps, Melissa. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thanks. It does. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa C. And Julia E., it's your turn with a question. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, Esther, I really appreciated it. Um, what came up for me was that, like, in my step tens, when I become, my my thinking can become sick again, and I convince myself uh, to justify and rationalize, and so it's like, you know, I'm feeling off, and I'm not checking myself. What do you do to not go completely off the rails? You know, like when you're spiritually off the beam, how do you, you know, um, gently turn back so it's uh, it's like a learning experience, not just uh, something where you plummet? And with that, I'll pass. Thanks so much. I hope that was clear. Yeah, Julia, did you want to clarify at which point we're getting off the beam, like in the in the in the fourth step, in the tenth step? Yeah, so um, in the tenth step of, it's sort of like I have this, um, you know, where have you been um, dishonest? Where you're asking the questions, um, and uh, you're taking your personal inventory, and it says right set right any new mistakes as we go along as we go along sometimes in my disease i've been so sick that i can yeah just sort of tweak those to where it works for my favor or at least i see and i actually call the other person and share that with them but it's not the truth you don't know that at the time but you feel off spiritually okay i'll try my best um, you know, one thing I find that is for sure not trendy today is <laughs> the voice of discipline, and that's the thing that saved my life. I was surrounded in my early years and even in adulthood with people who cared and loved me, and uh, all it did was allow me to go deeper and deeper in my disease. So today, the most caring um, and thing that, that I could do for myself is to be that voice of discipline, which I don't hear in, in others and I surely don't hear, like, kind of in the media. So one of the things I tell myself when I'm doing a 10-step is, like, you know, when people call me to do 10-step, especially people I'm really close with, you know, recovered people that I know for a long time, we already know what the answer is. We already know what the problem is. The problem is our egos and wanting things our way. But, you know, we do the process to see kind of like the like the, 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 the shade of thinking, you know, that, that we need to sort of discard and replace with a new one. So if the, if the realization I come to when having done the 10 step is anything other than I want life to be my way in this specific you know area and I'm not getting it, if there's any other answers, it's 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 not help. I know at least for me it doesn't it doesn't help me. I know someone who did a a 10 step once. We did it together, and the, the the conclusion she came to was that she hadn't been setting setting enough boundaries. Right? I have to set I have to set up my boundaries. I said, if that's the answer you're coming up with, then 
then, you know, meaning it always has to be this understanding that our problems only stem from wanting things to be our way when and they're not. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't strive to make things better when there's, you know, when it's right to do so. And it doesn't mean that we have to allow other people, you know, to harm us with their poor behavior. But we do have to understand that the problem is that we want things our way and it's not going away. So now, you know, once we're not angry anymore, we're positioned in a God-centered place from a God-centered point. And from there, we can move forward and act and do what we need to do. But And sometimes it will be creating boundaries and sometimes... Um, it will be just overlooking things, and sometimes it will be calling our mayor to make a change or whatever it is. But we, the first thing we have to do is understand, is, is reposition ourselves to be in a God-centered place and not in a self-centered place. Um, and my sponsor would always tell me, she says, how do you know if what you're doing is God-centered or, or self-centered? She'd say, by, by the results and by your anger, right? If you If you... If you try to make changes in the world or in yourself or in your family and you get angry when people don't go along, you could be sure that you're, you set out from a, a self-centered place. Because when you set out from a God-centered place and you understand that, you know, that you're not in charge, you do your little part, right, and then the outcome is out of your hands and you're peaceful even if the outcome is not pleasing, you know, leaves you with difficulty or whatever it is. So, um, so... When I, you know, when I started the 10 steps, I, I, I already know what the answer is. I just want to see, you know, like um, maybe a new shade of how my ego uh, wants its way. But it's always the same answer. Um, and I don't let myself get away with stuff because wh- wh- what would I gain by that? I, I mean, I might feel good in the moment, right? But then I'll, uh, I'll pay for it down the road if I, God forbid, go back to the food. And that's why when I call even recovered people wanting to share a 10 step, the, the people I prefer to listen to are the ones that are also going to take that disciplined approach, not going to let me get away with something, not going to say things like, oh, you know, you really, that's terrible. I can't believe they said that. You know, you should really stop. That's not, that's not helpful for me. That's what I used to do, right? Find a reason to, you know, that everyone else is wrong and I'm right. I want, I want to be told, reminded that, that my ego is, is demanding more out of life than it's receiving and, and how that is, sort of playing out with, you know, the people around me. And so I hope that helps. Thanks, Julia. Fantastic. It does. Thank you. Thank you, Julia E. And thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Esther, for giving so much of yourself this morning, sharing your experience, strength, and hope in this very compelling and beautiful presentation of yours. Again, the share ID for this morning, 13,068. That's 13068. We're going to close from page 164. You'll find it in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. Answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. 
We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.